0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. If you watched the first episode of our Lessons from Sundance podcast, you know that a faculty member, Christian Lybrook, and I were at Sundance recording a bunch of wonderful short-form videos that have been posted up to our social media about what you can learn from the films and the lectures and the documentaries that we saw there. We've now compiled all of those videos into this two-part series about lessons from Sundance. So in this second installment, we're going to have a treat for all you documentary filmmakers. We're looking at four vastly different documentaries. Nocturnes, which won Sundance's World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award for Craft, Every Little Thing, Black Box Diaries, and Eno. And don't worry, if you're not a documentarian, we're going to be gleaning lessons from the structure of these films that are going to be valuable to you no matter what genre you are writing in. We're also going to be sharing some really valuable insights from lectures uh, by Jonathan Nolan and Steven Soderbergh, some of the greats in the industry. We're going to be talking about the art of storytelling, the importance of theme, the use of research in screenwriting, as well as some. Detailed script analysis of two really wonderful and unusual action comedy features, Thelma and Kidnapping Inc. There are going to be some minimal spoilers in this series, but we're going to keep you posted between each analysis so that you can skip ahead if there is a film that you're hoping to see without any spoilers at all. And if you're listening instead of watching, and this sounds a bit Different than normal. No, that's because each video was recorded live from Sundance at a unique location with the idea of bringing this incredible festival home to you. We talk a lot in our classes about character driven structure. But how do you find structure when you're writing movies that aren't driven by human characters or by characters at all? Let's jump in and find out with our discussion of Nocturnes and Every Little Thing. Hello, it's Jacob Kruger and Christian Lybrook here from Sundance. We're going to talk about two different documentaries that we saw, and we're going to talk about it in a way that I think will be valuable for you, whether you're a documentarian or if you are writing a feature film or a TV show. So the two documentaries are Nocturnes, which is a really beautiful meditation about moths shot in the Eastern Himalayas. And every little thing which is a story about a woman in Los Angeles who is rescuing thousands of hummingbirds. And these two documentaries are really interesting because they're built in the exact opposite way. And I think the value of thinking about that is how much your take and your premise matters in building a script, right? So if we look at every little thing, every little thing is built, even though it's actually about hummingbirds, it's built around a traditional character journey there is a particular hummingbird named cactus and christian tell us a little bit about cactus
1: oh poor cactus cactus was found with literal barbs sticking out of her chest when she's brought a very tiny small like baby bird right yes yes and um terry who is the woman who's sort of profiled in this and is the hummingbird whisperer it is her goal to get Uh, cactus back out into the world.
0: Yeah. So so with cactus, we have this very traditional narrative storytelling inside a documentary, right? We have the story of, yes, we have lots and lots of birds, but really we have the story of Terry trying to save cactus. And of course, cactus is a lost cause, right? Cactus fell into a cactus and cannot fly and is going to die. And over the course of the movie, cactus, of course... Cactus makes it, right? I spoil, terrible spoilers. Oh, my God. But you're going to know it when you start. To, you're like, oh, Cactus is going to make it. And yes, Cactus makes it. And yes, you want to cry even though you saw it coming when Cactus makes it. And that's traditional narrative storytelling. The character is Cactus, right? And the hot relationship is the relationship between Terry and Cactus. And there's a particular moment that Christian really wanted to talk about in this film.
1: Yeah. Um, there's lots of different tools in our kit as screenwriters. And... And, you know, these tools can cross over between narrative and documentary, and we can, as narrative screenwriters, we can often learn from documentaries and vice versa. So there was this really small moment, and one of the things I always talk about with the writers I work with is, small moments, big impact, right? And there's this moment where all Terry is trying to do is get Cactus, this little hummingbird, to jump off this little twig onto another twig. And she drops it, and and we're waiting. Is Cactus gonna be able to do it? And you can't believe the amount of tension it creates in the room. And when Cactus finally makes the leap, what happens? The audience breaks out in applause. Yes, yes. Breaks out in
0: applause. Yes, we're literally cheering for a little tiny hummingbird who just jumped from a little magic wand, right? She calls it her magic wand. It's a little tiny stick that she's just raising and lowering from, from a magic wand onto, like, a little wire thing inside of its cage. But it's the first time that we see hope for Cactus, right? And... If you think in traditional screenwriting terms, right, we're not talking about just just documentaries here, right? In traditional screenwriting terms, this is want obstacle completion, right? This is, I want this. Oh, my God, it's so hard. I got cactuses in my back. I'm failing to thrive. It's not going to work. We we have this relationship with this woman who's trying to care for this bird that probably isn't going to make it. And then, oh, you get that first moment of hope. And, yeah, you want to cheer.
1: And, you know, I think... For a lot of us, our brain is always grasping for big, big, big moments that it knows are dramatic. But one of the games I play is go, okay, here's the big moment. I got it. What's the smallest moment that can create impact in my character journey? And sometimes that's the most surprising one.
0: Yeah. So now we want to pop over to Nocturnes, right? Because Nocturnes is built in a completely different way. There are characters, right? We're watching these Indian scientists who are studying these moths. And again, there is an obstacle, right? There is a very particular moth they are trying to study, and they're trying to, to map the effects of climate change on this moth. They're trying to understand how growth and elevation match up. The question they're really asking is, what happens when this moth runs out of territory, right? And what happens to the entire ecosystem when that happens? But unlike every little thing, nocturnes is built... Uh, like a meditation, right? It, it's a completely different approach to storytelling and, and profoundly beautiful, right? Um, but you're basically, you, you are sitting there and sometimes there's a shot that's like three or four minutes long and you are just looking at a screen, a, a bright, brightly lit screen that is swarming with moths in, in the middle of the, the high jungle of the Himalayas and and it's magical and beautiful, but it, it, it's built in a completely different way. It's right. It's built as they described it to transcend story, right? And it is built to force you, the audience, to get out of your cut, 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 cut way of thinking, and instead to have to surrender to looking a little bit closer. This is yes. Nocturnes is doing something profound that really you could probably only get away with in a documentary. But at the same time, you can see the same kind of thing if you've listened to my podcast on Saltburn. They just linger on this screen and it's beautiful. And at first, you're like, wow, that's really cool. And then you're taking in the sound design, which is just extraordinary. It's immersive. You feel like you're in the forest. And then they keep lingering. And so what happens is you start to get curious like, what, what is going to happen? right? Why are we lingering here, right? And then they keep lingering and you stop waiting for them to answer the question. You start to answer the question yourself, right? You start to notice what must be interesting about this. So there's a little dramatic thing that's happening that's happening inside of you as you are forced to stay with something longer than you expect. And what the, the, the effect of that is it forces you to surrender to the jungle and to the pace of the jungle, and it breaks you out of your traditional storytelling uh, expectations, and it forces you to tell yourself the story. But, well, Saltburn does the same thing, right? If you've, if you've seen Saltburn and you've seen the, um, the graveyard scene, they just linger on him on that grave so much longer than you are comfortable with. And of course it gets more and more extreme because it's a narrative driven film. I'm not going to ruin it for those of you who have not seen Saltburn, but they linger and they linger and they start with something that's that's dramatic. And then it becomes kind of gross. And then you just stay and you start to laugh. And then most people would cut, but she just stays. Emerald Fennell just stays and you start to laugh harder and harder. And the longer she stays, the more you're laughing because you're telling yourself the story of your own discomfort, right? So there are really two profound lessons. Number one is every choice you make as a filmmaker is based on what you want to do. And what you want to do may not be the traditional thing. The second thing is the power of pace to force an audience to do something that they're not used to doing, that you can actually use your pace as a tool for your audience, and for your, for your, your, your writing. Um, Christian, I wonder if you have anything to add about Pace.
1: Um, you know, I think one of the things that Nocturnes communicated to me um, is how theme permeates that piece, and you don't even realize it, but you experience it. So these long shots mimic what part of the theme is, which is about about time and time passing and how we are participating in it as human beings and our impact on uh, through time on, in this case, moths. And as writers, we can use theme to help sharpen scenes, to help even provide direction to the overarching uh, narrative of our characters, obviously. But the small choices too, you know? Now we can't go in and say, this shot's gonna last four minutes, right? But we get to do our own, um, we get to exert ourselves in terms of how we use theme into the story.
0: So. Keep on checking out these wonderful films from Sundance. We've got more coming at you. And hopefully, you, even if you're not here at Sundance, you're taking a lot away from this that you can use for your own writing. Having talked about the value of small choices with big impact when building structure, we're now going to talk about another documentary that builds in exactly the opposite way finding its impact through huge choices in relation to traditional structural elements like obstacle, threat, and antagonists, and in relation to a really important political theme. Black Box Diaries, directed by and starring Shiori Ito, was one of Christian's favorite films from the festival, and I think you are all going to benefit greatly from his insights about the movie. There are going to be a few small spoilers in case you want to skip ahead to the next section. All right. Jay Krueger and Christian Lybrook here at Sundance talking about movies and documentaries and what you can learn from them. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Black Box Diaries, which is a documentary film. Christian, without giving too much away, what's the premise of Black Box Diaries and, and what made it work?
1: Yeah. Black Box Diaries is really a journey towards justice. It's a young woman who is a journalist in Japan, and she gets sexually assaulted by one of her superiors. And Japan is not a culture where this is discussed. In fact, the laws do not even support women. Um, And so she's not listened to. Um, In fact, cases are thrown out. Police don't follow up on things. And all these odds are stacked up against her. And she steps forward as a journalist. She holds her own press conference. And that creates a snowball effect of both opening up the opportunity to talk about this, but also making her a target.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things I'm hearing there that I think is a really valuable concept uh, in both a documentary film and a feature is what is the biggest choice your character can make? What is the hardest choice your character can make? What what is the choice that the, the societal rules or the rules that they live by, you know, their own internal rules, their own internal architecture what is the rule that they live by and what would it take for them to break it? And what would live on the other side if they were to break it? And Christian, can you talk a little bit about like what's on the other side of that for her? this
1: young woman tells her family that she's going to speak out against what has happened to her and her family tells her not to do it. Yeah. So she's got obstacles right out of the gate. Yes. Right. She's got huge obstacles, meaning the culture and society and the laws of the land yeah. police force, but she's also got a very personal obstacle yeah. in terms of my family Yeah. and how they're processing this. And they, their obstacle is not, it's based actually in trying to protect her, yes. which is really interesting. Yeah. Right. And so on the other side of that, she's got everything to lose her career, perhaps her family, certainly her, um, her sense of privacy. Yeah. Right. And she's got to put it all on the line yeah. to say, I'm willing to sacrifice myself and my own public kind of like standing to pursue my want and the, emo- the bigger emotionally of justice.
0: Yeah. And so it's, it's so interesting right now, not every documentary film needs to have a narrative structure. But most of them do, right? Most of them do have those dramatic structures with exceptions like of nocturnes, which we talked about, and and a a few other outliers. Um, But it's the same dramatic structure of a feature, right? What does she want? What makes it hard, right? And what's the threat, right? What happens if she does it? What happens if she doesn't? What is there to be lost?
1: Well, and we talk about the studio about structure is this big idea where hear people bat it around, right? And no one defines it. They just say, ah, you got to look at your structure. But, you know, at its core level, we talk about structure as giving your characters choices that have consequences. Yeah. And all along, this young woman has to make really hard choices that have big consequences. And that creates an incredibly emotional, compelling story that allows you to participate in what's going on in a way that is entirely visceral. Yes. The amount of times I broke down and wept during that screen. Yeah.
0: And, you know, You've all had this experience, right? To just simplify it, you've all had the experience. You're watching a horror movie and the character is about to run up the stairs, right? And you're going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But you also understand why they're going to do it. And what that is, that's threat. You don't need to be writing a horror movie to create threat, right? Because the truth is our our lives are full of threat. If we didn't feel threat in our own lives outside of writing, we all feel threatened writing. Right? But if we didn't feel threat, then we would all be self-actualized. Right? And, and one of the beautiful things is when you really dramatize, not you know, sometimes we want to make it so easy for our characters, right? We're like, this is a nice woman and she's brave and she's strong, right? And we want to be just, just give her a break. Like, don't punish her for making the right decision, right? Yeah. But and in a documentary, obviously you're just mining the truth. But yeah. in, in, in feature film writing and TV writing, in playwriting, and novel writing, we have to actually let the worst thing happen we have to punish our characters unfairly for making the right choices. And the reason we have to do that is because what lays on the other side of that, right, is the real the real test and the real change. It would be easy for all of us to do the right thing if it wasn't for the threat that comes with it. I want to be a writer. Okay, I'll just write a script and get it out there. If it wasn't for the threat of rejection, right? If it wasn't the, for the threat of learning that you're not good enough. If it wasn't for the threat of, oh my God, what if dad's right, right? It wouldn't It would be easy and we would all do it. What if I can't? Uh, What if I have to change my whole view of myself, right? Without threat, everything's easy and therefore we don't have to change. But when we start to confront the threat, when we start to go like, what's the thing that my programming says I can't do? What are the rules I'm living by that aren't real rules? When you or your character make that kind of choice, you discover what lays on the other side and what lays on the other side is always profound.
1: Writing honestly and truthfully is one of the hardest things to do, right? And But when you're able to really, we were talking about listening earlier, what my character actually do in this moment and letting them pursue that thing. That's where the unexpected moment happens, both for your character, but also the audience. And now I'm participating if I'm in the audience. Yes. Because I'm like, oh my God, that's what happened? Or that's the choice they're going to make? Yes. And we don't think about... The choice is a dramatic point, right? We think about the consequence of the choice. But when you give your character a real choice, I want you to think about, they could do this, 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 and then I want you to bounce it off of what do I know about this character? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and you were alluding to the idea of like, everybody says, you got to work on the structure. No one tells you what the hell structure is, right? But structure is just, what does she want? What makes it hard? What's the threat? And what lays on the other side of that choice right, that, that the character's not prepared for, right? right. And, and that's structure, because that's structure in our lives. So the truth is, if you feel like you're not good at structure, that's bullshit, right? Because you do structure every day in your life, you just don't call it structure, you call it making choices. You call it consequences. You call it, I'm afraid. You call it, I was brave. And, and really, structure is just choice in relation to what you want and what you need against huge obstacles.
1: But I think sometimes we don't realize that we're giving our character a choice. It gets so buried in, oh, creating the tension around the want and the obstacle. And then you get to slow yourself down and really be deliberate about that instead of just jumping through the hoops, right? First draft's fine. Great. Put it on the page. Yeah. Right? Second draft's fine. Right? But the deeper you get into the process of rewrites, the more I want writers to really slow that stuff down and just be curious, Yes, right? There's no right or wrong answers at this point.
0: Yes. This is that that listening concept that you were talking about earlier. Uh, And there was another concept that I think is just interesting to bring back again, right? Which is oftentimes we think of antagonists, right? And we go, or obstacle, and we go, that's bad, right? They're evil, right? They're wrong, right? And one of the things I thought that you said that was quite beautiful is like, her family is making the wrong choice for her, and they're telling her the thing that is wrong for her, right? If you're a writer, you probably have this person in your life, right, Who, who's telling you, like, you know, maybe it's time for law school, right? Oh, are you really going to invest in a screamer? In a- That's crazy, right? Like, like, we have these voices, and it's easy to go, like, they're evil, but they're not evil. Yeah, yeah. You know, very few of us have actual antagonists in our lives. But what we do have is people with good intentions but different values. Yeah.
1: And I think one of the things we're actually talking about here is when we set up the protagonist-antagonist relationship, oftentimes our brain wants to make the protagonist good and the antagonist evil, right? Yeah. But the best scripts and the best stories, it's going to really be about the only arguments we're dramatizing are the one where both parties are right. Because now as an audience member, I'm going, that guy's a dick. Yeah. And then I'm like, but actually he's got a point. Yeah. And now I'm participating in the story because I'm conflicted. And even when the good you know, the, the, the protagonist, the good guy has to make choices. They have to be true to themselves. And sometimes they make the wrong choice, yes. but for the
0: right reasons. Yes. And sometimes the right choice comes with the wrong consequences, yeah. right? Or it comes with consequences the character's not ready for yet. So let's leave you with that. What a wonderful thing to end on. The only conflict worth dramatizing is the conflict where both sides are right. Let's mull on that for a while and go watch Black Box Diaries if you were here at Sundance. <laughs> We're now gonna switch our conversation to a delightful little feature action comedy called Thelma, written and directed by Josh Margolin. This screenplay is such a great illustration about how to keep your main characters active and how to deliver a twist on a beloved genre. There are only a few very small spoilers over what you'll likely see in the trailer, so you can probably feel safe listening even if you have not yet seen the movie. Hello, it's Jake Kruger and Christian Lybrook from Sundance, and we are going to be talking about Thelma. And I thought it might be interesting to kind of talk about twists on genre as we talk about Thelma. So without giving too, 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 too much away, what's Thelma about, Christian?
1: Well, its simplest description is Mission Impossible with a
0: Grandma. Yeah. 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 And what's really wonderful about the film is you watch Thelma go through all these little action tropes, right, as only a grandma could. It's essentially the slowest action movie you have ever seen, right? But they do all the kind of famous sequences, you know, there's this fabulous moment where she like, She's just trying to get to something high, and she rolls over on a bed right and um there's a wonderful moment where she's trying to navigate an antique store right and it, it's it, it's like what is that really famous movie with all the lasers that's that's the first
1: mission impossible movie. right
0: right yeah it's like it's like a mission impossible sequence except she's just trying to navigate an antique store, and so what's wonderful is that even though it's filled with old people jokes right at at the center of it. Um, there's really a story about, um, about kind of taking responsibility for your own life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that we were talking about the other night was we have these choices that we can make as the writer. Um, and we can either lean into the character and their perceived deficiencies, or we can give them a lot of help. And one of the things that I love was writer screen, uh, one of the things that I love was that the screenwriter director really leaned into what does it mean to be somebody who's older. And the setup is that her family thinks that she is incapable and it sets everything in motion for her to be very capable yeah. in this sort of heist movie or it, ma- it makes her very capable in her quest to get what really is money back that she had given to these scammers. Yes. Yeah. So,
0: yes. so it, it, in a way it's kind of like a PI movie, right? She's slowly solving the case, right. And getting into deeper and deeper well, book danger in quotes, right? Because this is one of the wonderful things about the film is the way it plays with tone, right? Is you have all the excitement. I mean, there are gasps at some point during the uh, book action sequences in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. But but we never get outside of the reality of like what a grandma could do. Yeah. And, and what's also really beautiful is that we're always playing in this kind of sweet, sweet genre, right? Um, the, the film is really an homage to the direct writer, director's grandma, whose name is Thelma, Right. And, and it's really about, um, it's about what we've been talking about, you know, throughout all these podcasts, right? Is like, How do you get your character to take action? Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Christian. I'm not sure where you're leading this conversation. Okay, great. (laughs) Uh, So uh, it's really really about how do you get your character to take action, right? And so uh, as Christian was kind of suggesting, right? You have a grandma, right? She's 94 years old, right? Her primary relationship is with her grandson, Right, uh, and one of the really interesting parallels is he's a kind of similar conundrum to in his own life. His own
1: life. Yeah, it, yeah, and his parents are telling him that he's sort of incapable, and they're 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 the ones who are constantly saying, "Have you gotten your driver's license renewed? Oh, what are you doing about this? Oh, maybe you should go back to school. Oh, maybe you should get back with your ex girlfriend."
0: Yes. Yeah, so there's 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 an overparenting of the grandma, and there's an overparenting of the of the son. Right, and um, they're, uh, the easy choice, right? The easy choice is you send the son and the grandma on an adventure together, right? And in, in a way, I wanted that, right? Because it, it's such a sweet relationship.
1: Yeah, and and this leads to the choices that we have as writers, right? One of the things we always focus on are these hot relationships. And hot relationships simply imply that there's friction, right? And um, the the strongest relationship is the grandmother and the grandson. And so we do want to see them together, but we don't want the grandson to do everything for the grandmother. Otherwise, we take power away from our protagonist.
0: Yes, exactly. So they make an interesting choice, which is they actually deprive us of that thing that we want, right? And instead they send both People are amazing. (laughs) They actually deprive us of the thing that they want. They actually actually deprive us of the thing that we want and instead send grandma and grandson on separate journeys. And what that does is it forces both of them to learn that they can move under their own power. Uh, And it also makes it so wonderful when they come back together at the end. Yeah. so a couple of lessons that I think uh, you can take from Thelma. Uh, the biggest is, remember what your movie's doing, right? Um, just because you're doing a great premise like Mission Impossible with Grandma, right, doesn't mean that the bad guys have to be super dangerous. We don't need shoot-em-ups. We don't need, um, we don't need, uh, we don't need the kind of threat that's in an action movie if you want to keep that super, super sweet tone. Right. You know, this movie could have also skewed way darker, right, in, in a different filmmaker's hands. Right. Um, it could have been a wonderful black comedy. Right. Uh, about about growing old and not being capable. Yeah. Right. And I think that one of
1: the keys that
0: the writer
1: director zeroed in on was the obstacles. Right. Yes. And the obstacles had to all be relative to the grandmother and her universe. Yes. But the key wasn't necessarily just making sure those obstacles were appropriate, that these obstacles have to be really hard yes. for your protagonist. Yes. And so what we start to realize is obstacles are relative to the character, where they are in their journey, and what their goal is.
0: Yes, yes. So so for grandma, just walking across a field can feel like Tom Cruise jumping off a building.
1: I gasped
0: yes, at that I moment. Did too.
1: And spoiler, she falls. And I was like, oh, What a great way to use what's already organic to the story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So remember what your movie is doing. Allow your movie to do what it's doing. And that means making choices against the tropes, right? Also, if you're writing an action movie or a parody of an action movie – Make sure you use the tropes.
1: Use them all, right? Yeah. All, those, all those things that are already there, all you have to do is pluck them out and go, now how do I recalibrate them for this universe? Yes,
0: and you know we hear about comps all the time, um, but often we, we always think comps mean this meets that, right? And so if you're looking for an idea in a movie uh, or in a TV show, often you can just go, what if I did Mission Impossible with a grandma, yeah. right? What if I did so, some kind of archetypal film, right? With a, with a twist, and suddenly you have an idea that no one's thought about before that, uh, like Thelma, is just beautiful and charming and it's just so much fun.
1: And not every script is going to fall into this category. You have a nice, neat sort of way to pitch it. But when you do, producers love somebody coming in and saying, Mission Impossible, but with a grandmother. And they can immediately see what that movie is in their head.
0: I feel like I should wrap it up. Wrap it up? Uh, <laughs> so... To wrap it up, what does your movie want to be? What's your twist in the genre? How are you using and playing against the tropes? What are the obstacles that are most challenging for your character in their world? And go check out Thelma. Next, we're gonna be talking about one of the biggest challenges for any writer, research. As a jumping-off point, we'll talk a bit about a lecture at Sundance from the great writer-director Jonathan Nolan, in which he spoke about some of his research strategies. And then we're going to transition into some of the techniques that have been most valuable for me and for Christian when it comes to using research in our own writing. Hello, Jake Kruger and Christian Lybrook here from Sundance, and we're going to be talking about a uh, really interesting lecture that Christian attended with Jonathan Nolan and the role and an approach to research that you can think about for your own writing.
1: And just to set context, Jonathan Nolan, if you actually do know him, whether you know him or not, he started out um, with a short story that um, his brother Christopher Nolan turned into the film Memento. Um, went on from that to write all the Batman movies with Christopher Nolan, then created Westworld and a bunch of other things. So, just by tracking through his list of credits, you start to feel that one of the things he's sort of obsessed with is technology, with science, and its impact on our lives. And, you know, th- it's an easy, easy um, rabbit hole to go down when we start talking about research. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. I know I'm a person, right, if I allow myself, I can start research like, you know, today and 16 years from now, um, I'll be like, you know, I'm almost done my research, right, and that the more research I do sometimes, the more I feel like I'm not ready to start, right, I don't know enough, right, and and that's the thing about research, It it can become a giant rabbit hole. Um, the, the other, and also it's a lot less scary than screenwriting, right? It, it's, it's so much more fun to sit down and just go like, I'm just going to research, right? Than to confront the fear of actually facing the page. The other mistake I often see writers making with research is mistaking the research for the story. Suddenly you have this really nice, beautiful, clean premise, right? With a clear want and a clear journey. And then suddenly it becomes like Information Fest 2024, right? Where you're suddenly just jamming information, 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 information in. And what that ends up doing is it dilutes your story. So it's important to remember that the research helps you set the world and helps you understand the characters and helps you understand the journey, helps you find those little details. But the research isn't the movie, the characters of the movie, Um, And so, Christian, can you talk a little bit about how Jonathan Nolan approaches research? So
1: Jonathan Nolan had a really interesting take, and this is something that we can all learn from. Um, He does a ton of research, and if you've seen his movies again, you see it in the fabric of the film. But one of the things he says is that the more research you do, the more boxed in you get by the rules of the research itself. And so this really kind of grasps what you're talking about, story and character, right? Right. We need that research to make everything feel authentic and real. But at a certain point, the more research we do, the actual worse the movie gets. Because, And this is a Christopher McQuarrie quote, um, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but information is the enemy of emotion. Emotion is the only reason we care about stories. So with some stories, we really do need the authenticity of that research, but it can get in the way of creating an emotional experience for your audience. Yeah.
0: So how do you approach uh, research in your own writing, Christian?
1: Yeah. In my own writing, research actually bears heavily. A lot of the stuff I do may be historical or it's very specific into a a specific occupation. And I love getting into the weeds on that. There's things that you can discover in research that you can never make up in a million years. But I sort of get to a point where I'm sort of doing this surface level research and I may dive down in particular subjects, but really I'm just looking for that thing that makes me go, oh,
0: really? I didn't know that, right? And once I get a few of those beats, that's all I really need, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, many years ago, I was working on a, a project about Pompeii, right? And uh, I, get, I get caught up in the research, as I've mentioned, right? Um, and so I made a rule for myself. I had to choose three books. And I like to bring in heavy research after I've done my first draft. And my, my first draft, I read three books. And when I'm looking for, you know, if I'm working on a true life story, I'm going to obviously interview people, right? But when I'm looking for in those early drafts I'm looking for the weird stuff, right? I'm looking for the stuff that doesn't quite make sense, that like peaks me for some reason, right? And so um, what I ended up finding from those whole three books about Pompeii, right? The the one thing that really mattered was that there are all these unsolved mysteries, right? And that that actually taught me all I knew, the producer had asked for a project about Pompeii. That was literally all I, like that was the whole prompt. And, And so the research pointed me there, the most complicated script I've ever written there. There's, it's a mini series. There's a, there's a mystery in the present and there's a mystery in the past and the two mysteries enfold each other. And, um, and it's a lot of fun and it was hard, but I, I finished that first draft and then I found an archeologist and I, I went to Pompeii and, uh, sat down with the archeologist Right. And the archaeologist had all kinds of comments that if I had come to him at the beginning, he would have destroyed my script. Right. Uh-huh. So like one of the mysteries was there was a cross found in Pompeii. <laughs> and in the book. Right. It talked about like, was Christianity in Pompeii? This is 79 A.D. Right. Right. Um, couldn't have spread that far already, right? And so I wove that into the story, right? And I I, I mute the archaeologist, and he goes, it's a cabinet bracket, right? It's, it's not a cross, right? That's ridiculous. In any way, it wouldn't have been a cross. It would have been a fish, right? And if if I had gotten that information at the beginning, it would have destroyed everything I was trying to build. Yeah. I got it later, and I was like, okay, how can I make this realistic? But then the, the, the amazing information was like finding out that the... Archaeologists are the only people in Pompeii who eat bad food, right? They're the only people in all of Italy because they have no money, right? And they're working a millimeter by millimeter by millimeter trying to preserve the truth. Then you have the tour guys and they hate the tour guides, right? Because the tour guides are going through going, and here the chariots rush, and, and they're like, there are no chariots in Pompeii, right? And, and, and I realized that the piece had to actually be about truth, right, which I didn't realize at the beginning. Right? And how the need to get everything right can actually get in the way of you actually being able to do their job. Like, if, if, they, if they unearthed Pompeii today, the way it was unearthed back then, like, if they unearthed Pompeii back then, the way it was unearthed today, we still wouldn't know there was a Pompeii, right? Because they, they move so slow because they don't want to lose anything, right? And I realized, okay, that's what the movie is really about. And then that brought me back to do a rewrite. But, but what I think what's interesting about this is, both of those pieces of information, I would not have known to, what to do with at the beginning. Yeah. Right. And so really thinking about like, how much information do I need to get started? Right. And then bring the experts in after you know what it is, because the experts are going to be obsessed with stuff that actually isn't that important to you. Right. They're going to be obsessed with all these little details. And I'm going to go, no, 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 no. And what you really want to be able to do is go like, okay. Now I understand all the little things I got wrong and how can I use that to invoke a larger, uh, a, a more detailed landscape in the piece. Yeah.
1: And there's a flip side to this, which is I think some writers are terrified of research, yeah. right? And they don't even know how to get started. Yeah. And you know, when we're in that situation, we just run to the fun, right? Yeah. We go to the thing that is most interesting to us that yeah. makes us go, no shit. yeah, That's fascinating, right? And we just build on that. One of the other things I'll say is that once you do have a sense of maybe what this thing is about, There are academics all over the world who live in their offices and teach their classes and live in their bubble? And you reach out to them and send them an email and you say, "Hey, I'm a screenwriter and I'm working on this topic around biofuels and I'm wondering if I can get 20 minutes of your time." And you will be surprised at how many people are like, "You're working on a movie about something that
0: I love dearly. Let's hop on the phone, yes. right?" And they'll work with, they'll work with you for free and don't promise time. them too much, right? Because they can type your movie the, later, right? Don't but, promise
1: them anything. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes,
0: <laughs> yes. They will work, but they will work with you for free and. You know, I I think it's really important. We we do want to write authentic movies, yeah. right? And, and when you see a movie that has that feeling of authenticity, it, it, it it's so incredibly powerful. Um, you know, we talked about Reynas before, right? Where, like, you're dropped into that world of Lima, and it feels real, right? And it's these tiny little details that make it real. And I guess the last thing I'd like to leave you with is, if you haven't done the research yet, beware of dropping... To, We've got another embarrassing story about, about myself. But my, my first movie uh was a, was a script called The Tree of Life, uh, not the brilliant Terrence Malick uh Tree of Life, a much, much worse film. Um and um I it was set um it was set uh in you know the American West. Uh, like when the West was the West, when Ohio was the frontier, right? And um the main character, you know, has a land grant and he goes out to and I got caught up for months on, like, how do you build a house, right? Like, you're a brand new guy. You just showed up in the middle of the woods in this, like, little beginning town. Like, do people help you? How do you build your house? How do you live while you build your house? And I got obsessed with it. And I couldn't find the answer. And I'm reading book after book after book after book after book until I finally realized, like, this it, this movie is not about how Tom builds a house, right? Like, And, and that's that's the date. Like I was a little tiny infant baby screenwriter, still in diapers, right? But but that's the kind of stuff that happens to beginning screenwriters. Um, but don't just like leave a blank. Um, if you don't know the answer and you can't quickly find the answer, do some imaginative research, right? Um, make, create something that you can react to later. Because when you just kind of put a blank, that gives you nothing to play with for the rest of your script. But when you go, okay let me just sit in this. Like, what would I do? Right. If you can't find the answer, don't spend a month trying to find something that might end up getting cut out of your script. Cause in the actual final script, Tom shows up and then he has a house, right? And nobody freaking cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares Cause that's not what the movie's about, but you don't know in those early drafts. So you want to stay out of the rabbit hole. You want to do enough research to make it believable to make it specific, to find those little weird things. Um, And if you can't do the book research, do the imaginative research in the early draft and then come back and bring an expert in once you really know what the script is.
1: Yeah. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was a Peace Corps volunteer many years ago. And you're packing... The night before you leave to go to this new country to do your work, you're packing for two and a half years maybe of your life. And the advice they always said was, pack your bags, then take half out. And I think that's a great metaphor for thinking about research.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. So pack your bags, take half out. Um, And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you from Sundance. Okay, having come through all these wonderful craft and structural ideas, we're now going to pivot to talking about voice. Voice is really the only thing you have to sell as a new writer, it's the ability to write like yourself, and it's both the easiest and the hardest thing to do as a screenwriter. We all have a thousand other voices, both internal and external, shouting at us about what we are supposed to do as a writer, what rules we're supposed to be following, what our project is supposed to be. Steven Soderbergh gave a brilliant lecture at Sundance about the art of listening as a writer and as a director. So we'll be using that as a jumping-off point to learn more about how to find your own voice. As a writer, what are some of the takeaways that you got from that lecture that you think are most valuable for screenwriters?
1: So, Steven Soderbergh, writer director, you've probably seen all of his movies, he gave an hour sort of just chat. Right, It's very informal. And, it's, and if you're a screenwriter and you're at a festival, take advantage of these opportunities. Because these are once-in-a-lifetime things. You're never going to get a chance to hear Steven Soderbergh talk about crafts. And one of the things that he really zeroed in on was when he's on set from inception all the way through post, he's always listening to the story. And it's a really interesting thing to say because if you don't know what that means, it just sounds like gibberish. Yeah. Right. So I think it's such a – I would love to talk to you a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, we, what,
0: what, do you, what, is, what, is, what does Soderbergh mean when he say, says listening? And, like, yeah. what does listening mean to you, Christian? Yeah,
1: so Soderbergh gave the example of um, – actually, somebody else brought it up that he doesn't give a lot of attaboys um, on set, and whether it's actors or crew or whatever. And um, an actor came up to another actor and said, I think he hates me. And really what's going on there is he's just trying to be quiet. The more he starts talking about things, the less he's actually in tune with what's actually happening under the surface. So part of that listening is simply being quiet and quieting your brain. And by doing so, hopefully you get closer and closer and closer to what's really going on under the surface, both for the character and for the story.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting, right? Because we all have all these voices in our heads. Right? And, and we think those voices are serving us, right? When the voice says, that's not good enough, you're not good enough, right? Or, maybe it should be like this, maybe it should be like this, maybe it should be like this, or what if this, or what if this? right? Sometimes it can sound like a very positive voice coming at you, um, but what I think all those voices do when they're coming at you with with ah like that frenetic energy, is they actually get in your way of being able to listen to the characters, being able to listen to the script. If you're a director, being able to listen to the actors and the scene, right? And that, that in order to actually do your job, well, like Christian was talking about, you do have to be able to quiet your mind. Right. And it's the hardest thing to do in life. Right. And it's the hardest thing to do in writing. And, And I think partly what's coming
1: through, when we talk about listening, for me, there's this transition that happens. Everything kind of starts as what I call writer one. It's like, I want to do this. I want to explore this. But if I'm doing it right, slowly, 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 I become a conduit for the characters, for the story, for the themes, right? And that's when I know I'm listening, when that little voice just starts to say, huh. And it's very quiet, right? I have to be listening really hard. But we were talking about the difference, or not the difference, but the idea of patterns. And how patterns can help you listen, right?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting what you were just saying. Like, when, when I was a young writer, I remember, you know, going to lectures like these and hearing writers say, you know, you just listen to your characters. And I know, I'm not really a writer. I'm just like the conduit from the thing, from the universe. And I remember thinking, what a bunch of bullshit. Like, I'm working my ass off. Like, I'm working so – I'm not a freaking conduit. Like, I'm working so hard all the time. And I was. Mm-hmm. And I was good at working hard. And I wrote a lot of mediocre to good screenplays Mm. doing that. And then one day I learned what it actually means to be a conduit. And it was like, oh, oh, right? Like that that I actually hadn't been a writer, right? That I had been half a writer, right? Because half of the writing does take place here, right? In the conscious part of your mind. But most of the writing does not, right? And you think that you're trusting yourself when you trust your mind, but you're actually trusting yourself when you trust your intuition, and those are different things, and it, it's so scary to let go of mind, right? And, and, and by the way, let go of mind doesn't mean letting go of mind forever, right? It, what we're actually trying to reach is eventually—what <laughs> we're actually trying to reach eventually is like that perfect— balance between the subconscious and the conscious, right, that perfect dance where you have just enough tension. But if you come from Western society, you, you know, unless you grew up Buddhist, right, with an incredible incredible meditation practice, right, all of your work has been pushed towards this conscious part of your mind until you forget that the subconscious actually exists because it's just not valued in our society. But that's the part of you that's a good writer. So learning how to quiet your mind, learning how to listen, learning how to perform that that radical act of trust in yourself, right, and and learning how to go like, okay, all those voices are good. Uh, What I do, I write them down. If I don't write them down, they stay with me. In my personal life, that's often journaling in the morning, right, just doing three pages of morning pages is get that garbage out. But in screenwriting, what I do is I jot it in the margins, if I'm writing on a, on a page, which I like to do in early drafts, and jot it on a, on a piece of paper. If I'm writing on the computer, I want to remind myself, like, this is a thought. This is not writing. This is ju- this is just garbage off on the margin, and it might come back and it might be important. But learning how to get past the la, 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 and and you know you're listening because it comes at you differently, right? Rather than coming at you like, oh, what if it, what if it, what if it, right? Instead of coming at you with with anxious energy, it comes at you like this right it comes at you um, uh, I, I took a yoga class once and, and the the yoga instructor said yo- a yoga instruction should feel like left foot down mm. right and and when when it comes at you like a yoga instruction right when it comes at you with that kind of simplicity right and there 's no there's no there 's no Charge underneath it, right? It's just true, right? This belongs in the script. Yeah, this is true. This made me cry. This feels off, right? Those quiet, those quiet answers. That's when you know you're listening.
1: And what I would add to that is, when you get a sense that something isn't quite there, you don't have to fix it right then. The most important thing is to acknowledge it and just write it down, and then go. I get that because when you write that down, your brain goes, oh, you want me to think about this. Yeah. Right. And it's working out in the background. And that's when you're walking your dog or whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, right. And so we have this, you know, my brain is constantly hammering me. Figure it out now. How come you haven't made a decision yet? If you were a better writer, dot, dot, dot. But that's not actually the case. All we're saying is this is the process. Yeah. Right. And how reassuring is that to know that it's just like I'm not doing anything wrong. Right. This repetition, this iterative nature of the process is simply this is just how it works.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, so, take a little bit of advice from S- Steven Spo- Soder. <laughs> our, our our running joke is is Steven Soderbergh. Uh, so take a little bit of advice from Steven Soderbergh via Christian Liebrook. Instead of concentrating on fixing your script, instead of concentrating on making it right, instead of concentrating on what you want it to be. See, what happens if you quiet your mind for a moment and just look for that quiet voice? What if you just start to listen? Next, we'll be looking at Eno, a revolutionary little documentary by Gary Hustwit about legendary music producer Brian Eno. The film Eno pushes the limit of how structure can be built in a movie by integrating an AI engine that builds a new structure every time the film is shown. So how do you make this kind of radical choice without it feeling like just a gimmick? And what can Eno teach us not only about the future of filmmaking, but about finding structure in our own early drafts and our own screenplays? Stay tuned to find out. Hello, this is Jacob Kruger. I'm now home from Sundance, but why should the party end? There are some movies we have not yet talked about. And the first one i'd like to discuss with you is a documentary film called Eno about uh, great music producer Brian Eno and there are, there's a lot we can learn from this documentary, whether we're documentarians or feature filmmakers or TV writers. But the first thing I want to talk about is a concept called form as function now. I first learned this concept many, many years ago when I was in college from a wonderful professor named bill cook and, and Bill Cook wasn't a screenwriting professor; he was a poetry professor and the concept as he described it was always that the form of the poem and the function of the poem should be one thing that the choices you make as for as for the shape and the rhyme and the rhythm patterns um, that that every single choice you make should relate to the function of the poem. In other other words, what is the poem supposed to do? And of course, screenwriting and poetry are more alike than people think. Um, A screenplay is also like a poem in that every single line, every single moment needs to push the story forward, needs to have a function, needs to do something screenplays are actually a lot more like poetry than than a form like a novel, right, where, where you have this expansiveness. We have only a limited number of pages to do so much, and that means every single word needs to count. So the Brian Eno documentary is a really wild example of form as function, in that they're doing a documentarian about a producer and musician uh, who worked with All of the greats, you know, David Bowie, U2, the Talking Heads. But what they do that's really interesting is they take part of the functionality of what Brian Eno was trying to do as a producer, right? So Brian Eno was not only interested in producing songs, he was interested in producing engines for songs, He was interested in compiling the raw components of songs that a computer could then iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate so that you could have music forever and that no one would ever hear the same song. Well, what these filmmakers do is they basically take the form of what Eno is trying to do and turn it into the function of their documentary. And the way that they do that is by creating an AI doing a very extensive editing labeling process. There were actually two different editors on the film. There are certain moments that are bookmarked, right? They're going to always occur in a certain section. And then labeling all the different scenes by topic and theme and type of interview. And what the AI does, it it then puts it together into a structure. Now. This may be a little terrifying for you if you're a screenwriter, right? We're all afraid of being replaced by AI. Um, But one of the reasons that this works really well is because of form and function meeting, right? In other words, they are creating a documentary about Brian Eno in the way that Brian Eno would have created it. And because it's a music documentary, it doesn't need a rigid structure. We have this wonderful experience of literally no two people will ever see the same movie at the same time. There are gajillions of different permutations. I also think this is really interesting as related to the editing process, right? And in related to the structuring process for any screenplay, which is you can think of the end of each act of your movie. If you're using a seven act structure, right? You can think of it like a buoy, right? It's like something you're navigating towards. And in most movies, there are certain big moments that we're navigating towards. Right. And often what happens is we end up doing too much outlining. Right. And we think that we have to connect every point on the timeline between these great buoys. But what's wonderful about buoys is you're not on a train track. Right. You can go to the buoy like this. You can go off like this. You can you can run right over the buoy. You can realize there's a cooler buoy out in a different direction and head in a different direction. And, and so in a way, we can take a lesson from the editing of this film, right? And from the creation of this AI to go, okay, well, how does that relate to what I'm doing as a screenwriter? Does that mean that rather than having to figure out everything, I can figure out a few really big, important things and a general location of where I think those things need to be. And imagine the, the creativity and the freedom you've ha- you'd have if you could create just like these artists have done, right? a big library of potential content for your movie, in other words, a rough draft, and then gently find your way not through one permutation, but through many permutations until you finally find the form that feels most powerful to you. The final movie in this series is Kidnapping Inc., a brilliant, broad action comedy out of Haiti with an incredibly palpable political message. We're going to be talking about how the writers, Jasmine Andre, Gilbert Mirambo Jr., and writer director Bruno Moral, whose names hopefully I have not completely butchered, use humor to lower their audience's defenses and deliver the medicine of their political message in the most appealing and powerful possible package. There are going to be some spoilers in the opening sequence of the movie, but really only there. So you are probably safe listening, even if you have not yet seen the film. The best way I can describe Kidnapping Inc. is it's basically pulp fiction. If the wolf hadn't shown up to help these guys, what's really interesting about Kidnapping Inc. is that we are dealing with a real horrific social problem. Haiti has had in 2022, they had over a 1,000 kidnappings. Think about that as a percentage of their population. Um, In fact, during the shooting of this movie, three different team members from the crew were actually kidnapped. So they're shooting in one of the most dangerous places to shoot a film. And they're shooting a movie about one of the truly horrific social problems facing the people of Haiti. And they take a really shocking take on this, which is instead of playing it seriously, they play it for comedy. And instead of playing it for the from the perspective of the the victims, they play it from the perspective of the kidnappers. And the effects of that is that first off, it draws it draws you into the story in a way that you couldn't imagine, right? It lowers all of your defenses to this story, right? You, are, you come in, you hear Kidnapping Inc. You know it's about kidnapping in Haiti and maybe you think, oh God, I better, I better put a shield up, right? This could get really hard. And then you meet these kidnappers. These are the first people you meet. They're hilarious. They are like the hitmen having the royale of a cheese conversation from Pulp Fiction. So they've got a guy in their trunk and they've got a flat tire. And the whole first scene is just these two guys shooting the shit while they try to change a tire while they've got a live kidnapping victim in the back of their car. And it's hilarious and it's disturbing, but you fall in love with these guys. And like the Royale Cheese scene in Pulp Fiction, what they're talking about makes you fall in love with them even though you can't possibly agree with what they're doing or the complete lack of concern they have about the human being in their trunk. And their conversation... It's about a dream that one of them had. The previous night, one of them had a dream about being sexually assaulted by a rat in his sleep, by being penetrated by a rat in his sleep, right? And he's terrified that perhaps that dream makes him gay, right? And it is a really funny and endearing and complicated scene, but it also sets up a metaphor for the whole piece, right? Because what the filmmakers are really talking about is they're talking about an entire culture, right? An entire place that's been assaulted by a rat. This permeating social problem that destroys every single aspect of their society. And so even though they're playing for comedy, they are attacking an extremely serious subject, right? Um, But we're following The kidnappers. And the effects of that is that we start to understand not, oh, those bad kidnappers should stop kidnapping. We actually, through this broad, 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 broad comedy, start to understand the the socio-political elements that are actually creating the problem in the first place. We understand it at the lowest level, these low-level kidnappers who are just trying to survive because they make a terrible mistake. They accidentally kill the guy in the back of their car. And just like the guys in Pulp Fiction, they desperately need some help, except for these guys, no help is coming. In fact, what is actually coming is a guy on a motorcycle straight out of Raising, Arizona that is going to try to track them down and kill them. And this leads to, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but this leads to some awesome broad comedy, incredible action sequences. You are laughing your butt off nonstop for about an hour and a half. You just cannot stop laughing as these guys dig themselves deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in, just to give you a little taste of it. They decide that they're definitely going to get killed, right? For having killed this guy because he is the Senator's son, right? The guy who's running for president, right? They need to to bring him alive and he is dead. So what are they going to do? Um, they're going to pretend that they had an accident. They're going to crash their own car into a wall and pretend that somebody hit them and maybe get off that way. And instead what happens, they've been having a problem with the trunk. It's been an ongoing thing. And as they back up, the body falls out of the truck and then the body starts to run. And we get this unbelievable comic action sequence that races us through the ghetto of Haiti, right? That races us through the place where the poorest of the poor lives. And again, it's played all for comedy, but we're actually seeing the challenges that these people are are struggling with, right? And the way that everyone is preying on one another. And they're so they're going to chase the guy that they think is they thought was dead. They're going to chase him all the way through. Their airbags have gone up, so they're in they're covered in white powder, and they're running through the ghetto. And it's this crazy, hilarious chase sequence where all the obstacles are, are different residents that that play for comedy. And at the end of the chase sequence, they finally catch up to the guy. And rather than shooting him, they throw a potato at the man. And the potato hits him in the back of the head. And slight spoiler here. He hits his head on the curb and he dies again. So they've now killed the same guy twice, right? And this sets off a chain of ridiculous events um, that show you the corruption that goes all the way up, all the way up to the senator, the, the, the kid's father, right, through the police department and through those who are trying to survive, who have lost their compassion and their empathy for those around them. So we get this unbelievable sociopolitical landscape through the goofiest possible, most comedic possible lens that you could ever imagine. There's so much that we can learn from this. Number one, it took this guy about seven years, three kidnapping victims, running out of money multiple times, dealing with their equipment, getting stuck at customs, bribes, right? So next time you think, my God, I can't make a movie. Remember, this guy did. He made a movie in one of the most dangerous places to shoot a movie in an environment where next to zero films come out of Haiti, right? So, So that's number one. Number two, though you don't have to do a broad comedy to write a really powerful issue movie, there is medicine there, right? Because when you get your audience to lower their guard, When you meet the audience where they are, it allows your message to get in in a much more profound way than when you come at somebody hard, right? If you want to change somebody, if you want to change their point of view, if you want to make them aware, you can start by going like, you should be where I am because you're probably an expert and they are probably not. And similarly, if you're making a drama and you know, man, you're going to make them cry. But if you start drum rolling, this is going to hurt you. You're going to hurt. What happens is your audience starts to put up a wall. If from the very beginning of the movie, you're going to, I'm going to tell you how to think. You're thinking wrong. I'm going to tell you how to think. Your audience puts up a wall, right? They don't want to be hurt. They don't want to be attacked. They don't want to be wrong, right? But if you can find a way to say to your audience, come on in. The water is fine. Come on in. This is going to be fun. Come on in. I'm going to meet you where you are. It gives you a tremendous power to say something that you might not normally get away with, and not only to say it, but to say it in a way that gets past the person's defenses into their subconscious, that permeates the the experience of that person, that that uh, that activates the empathy rather than the resistance of that person, and that actually moves someone in relation to the things that matter to you. I hope that you have enjoyed this series and that it's helping your writing. If you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and write us a five-star review. And if you want to learn more, we have a free class every single Thursday. You can find out more about that and all of our programs on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. And stay tuned for next episode when we are going to be talking about beef.